0: It's good to see you. Um, This band, can we just give it up for them one more time? Uh, I always feel this tension. I'm like, I don't want to go out because I have to stop them. And they're so much better than I am. And I just feel sorry for you sometimes, quite honestly. But um, one of the things that I I love about them is they're a team. And, uh, and they reflect a secret to probably a lot of the things that if you've been coming to Encounter Church for a while that you love about this church is that we are not a, a church centered around me or any specific me, that we believe we is always better than me, that we can do collectively so much better together, so much more together, that we can go further, we can have a greater impact, that we can infuse more hope and help in this community together together. And that's been the bedrock of us as a community from day one, that we just believe, man, when we are a community of people working together, it really is, there is no limit to what God can do in and through us. And so if you're here for the first time today, maybe you're trying to say, well, what, what, what's about? Like, what's going on? It's just, that's it, that we believe. Like, there's something in the midst of God kind of working through us collectively and I want to kind of do a little commercial if you will allow me. Uh, This Saturday, so a week from yesterday, we will host our second annual um, egg drop and it's fun to say second annual egg drop and uh, we have 3,500 people signed up. right, 3,500 people signed up. There would be more people signed up if we had not stopped the registration because for 3,500 people who are coming, there are hundreds And hundreds of people who are on a waiting list, hoping someone else, like, sprains an ankle or gets sick. I mean, there's that kind of, I mean, there's probably some, like, slightly demented prayers going up this week by little kids who are like, I just want someone to get sick so I can go to the egg drop, you know? And I I see where people are dropping out, and and it's instantly, the moment someone says, hey, I don't need all these tickets, there's this, like, instant registration of someone on the waiting list. And here's the thing. 3,500 people is a lot of people. What made last year's event successful was not the number of people that showed up or the fact that a helicopter was hovering above um, a field dropping thousands of eggs. What made last year's event successful was you, that we had an incredible team, and that appearing, uh, speaking before the board of selectmen just recently, that was one of the things uh, that uh, when I was kind of sharing about the event and they voted on it, that we had this unanimous pass. and. The reason why was because of you. They said we were so blown away with the organization and the people that we saw of Encounter Church. And uh, just I want to ask you just to consider signing up to volunteer in the app that Jason referenced earlier is, is a link where you can sign up and we need you. Uh, we'll have more people this year. We need more volunteers than we needed last year. And so I would encourage you, maybe your family, you're like, well, we both want to do it, to even get creative and say, you know, what, we'll tag team. We'll take the first part, and then I'll tag, and you can take the second half. And maybe you, as a couple, you can't sign up for the entire block, but maybe you, as a couple, like, collectively could do both. Um, there, There's a lot of different opportunities to serve, even if you're not good with kids or you're not sure how you would be comfortable being involved with thousands of eggs, um, you If you just want to stand there and look scary, we need people that do that well, okay? Like, that just kind of stand there and are like the bodyguards, bouncers, the egg bouncers that prevent the kids from running onto the field when the helicopter comes and hovers. I mean... There's no skill set that is in this room that we cannot employ for the greater good of this egg drop this Saturday. So if you're interested in signing up, uh, click on uh, Egg Drop Volunteer in the app or swing by starting point all the way out. But today I'm going to finish up the series that we started at the beginning of this month, the series called uh, Bottom of the Ninth. And um, I want to kind of just be real. One of the things that we recognized about the series going into it is that Okay, we want to talk about that moment in the bottom of the ninth where things, there's this game-changing moment where things take this turn. What looked like a loss becomes a victory. What does it look like as a people to best position ourselves to take advantage of those bottom of the ninth moments? But here's the reality, here's the sad reality, is not every one of those bottom of the ninth moments pan out. And that we felt if we were going to do justice to this series that we also had to be honest about the fact that sometimes the bottom of the ninth finishes and you walk off the field and you've lost. And you find yourself in a place you never wanted to be. You find yourself in a place you never intended to be, whether that's a divorce, whether that's widowed, whether that's disconnected and broken from your child and the relationship or in a dead-end job, or just a life marked by this depression or despair, or that bill from the doctor, that overwhelming financial number that crushes you or the report from the doctor that didn't go the way you hoped that bottom of the ninth moment would play out. Now what we want to do today is unpack what do we do when we find ourselves with the close of the ninth and the game is over and we didn't win? How we navigate that moment because that moment is a moment that many of us, whether we're in it or we will find ourselves in it, at some point have to deal with a defeat that we never desired to have in our lives. And it's gotta go beyond these pithy statements, right? I don't know if, I I get frustrated when people say, um, can I just be polite, well, let me just be honest. I hate when people say stupid things like, oh, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger? I'm like, what does that even mean? You ever been stabbed in the ribcage? That don't make you stronger. I mean, but we have these pithy statements where people are like, well, you know, what will be will be. It's just meant to be this way. Or when I've sat with families who've lost loved ones or who've lost kids and people sincerely, they sincerely say it. But they say things like, well, God just wanted to have another angel. And I'm like, as a parent who's lost a kid, you don't want to hear that God wanted another angel. Like pithy doesn't. Bring hope. Oftentimes, pithy statements are spoken by people who've never walked through that valley. They're not helpful. And though they desire to be and it comes out of a sincere place, it's not not hopeful either. And what we want to kind of unpack over the next just 25 minutes is a process, uh, some steps of how do you proceed? How do you walk off the field when the game has been lost? How do you deal with that moment when you find yourself in a place you never intended to be? What does it look like to have more than just pithy statements that are meant to hype you up when deep down inside you know you need genuine hope? And to to do that, I want to walk you through three steps that you and I can take into our lives today or, or to put up on a shelf for our lives tomorrow or maybe even some steps that you can offer to a friend who finds himself in the same place. Say, hey, I heard a message at church, and maybe you don't even go to church, but this, I felt like, would actually be helpful for you. This is one of those kind of moments, one of those kind of messages. These three steps, what I love is it's short. um, It's a really short passage I want to dive into, but it comes from a passage. It comes from a psalm that was written with someone in the bottom of the ninth moment, and it didn't play out well. Because like, life isn't always a Disney movie where it ends in happy endings. And I was sitting on the couch watching a, a movie with my daughter yesterday, and she said, even in the midst of this scary moment, she was like, Dad, it's going to turn out okay because it always ends with a happy ending. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, she's going to find out really soon that life isn't like the movie. And so this process, this backstory is 2500 years old but it's powerful it's found in psalm 126 six simple verses that i want to unpack for us and And kind of walk through in a way that reveals the three steps because this simple passage, maybe you've read it before, maybe you've never read it before at all, but this simple passage is loaded with some vivid imagery that it's helpful to understand it, to be able to draw hope out of it. So Psalm 126, and if you have the Encounter Church app, you'll find that it's already preloaded for you. Um, It's going to be on the screen behind me when I start to read through it, but here's what Psalm 126's backdrop is that's helpful. Um, So the book of Psalms is, uh, for for the sake of argument, is the Jewish songbook. It was ancient Israel's hymnal. Uh, This morning we sang songs. You didn't walk in with a hymnal, but we had a digital hymnal, right? We had this digital kind of screen that played out the lyrics so that you could follow along. And and the ancient church and the ancient Jewish um, group of people, their songbook, their hymnal was the book of Psalms. It's what they would sing. It's what they would say that was very much just like what you experienced earlier. These were songs that were meant to be honest. They were meant to be hopeful. Sometimes they were just raw. But whatever they were, they were meant to to focus the Jewish people on the God who was still in control. And Psalm 126 is part of this specific group of um, psalms. So from 120 to 136, because there's 150 psalms, and, and that block of psalms is, was a, kind of a subset of the hymnal that was called the Song of Ascents, which is why if you were to open up a physical Bible or if you were on the web and you looked up Psalm 126, you would see a Song of Ascents, which is um, this songbook that was dedicated to specific kind of time period for a Jewish family or a group of Jewish pilgrims. See, uh, throughout ancient Israel, the center of religious life was the temple. It was this special place set aside in Jerusalem. And ancient Jewish mindset was that God inhabited that temple. And so multiple times a year, the Jewish people would travel as groups of pilgrims to Jerusalem. It was called ascent, like going up, because no matter where you came from, traveling to Jerusalem was an uphill walk. You had to go up because Jerusalem was centered and and kind of situated on top of a mountain. And so Psalm 120 to 136 were the psalms that people would say on the way to Jerusalem and to the temple specifically. And this psalm would, would invoke a lot of memories and images that were raw and fresh for the Jewish people. This psalm, with literally embedded inside of it, is a discipline that I think, as the Jewish people sang it multiple times a year, what started to happen is they started to learn a pattern and a process that I want to teach you this morning. It begins with Psalm 1 through 3, which kicks off this Psalm 126 frame, where it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy, and then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. That 50% of the psalm invokes the idea of a past memory. You see, this isn't why the psalm is written. If you just stop with three, you could think this psalm is about whatever that restored fortune is, whatever that's referring to. This must be what the psalm's about. But when we keep reading in a few minutes, you'll find that the psalm turns radically. Off of this and goes from this happy, kind of upbeat, joyful tone to this more somber, hopeful, is it going to work out tone? And because what happens is they're doing the very first thing in this this very first step that this psalm lays out for us. Uh, the reference Psalm 126, 1 through 3 is actually specifically to a historical event in the life of the Jewish people. That when it says, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, or when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, that embedded in that language was a specific image or specific time period called the exile. Which is not something that many of us probably even have an awareness of because we don't study ancient Jewish history. Um, But the Jewish people had a period that was incredibly dark for them, known as the exile period. What happened is that we won't get into too much of the history, but essentially the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, this famous king that maybe you studied in ancient kind of some type of history course throughout your studies, um, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and he lays siege to it. He brings his army and they attempt to conquer this area. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian force was an incredibly powerful army, and they are successful. They're so so successful, in fact, that over the course of four separate raids by Nebuchadnezzar and his commanders, 70,000 men and women are carried off. 70,000 is a big number. It doesn't feel as big today. But 70,000 is a significant number back then. You didn't have cities that were millions of people. You only had a handful of cities in the world that were above 100,000 at this point. And Jerusalem is one of those cities that's this super metropolis that people travel to, this vibrant place, and 70,000 of them are swept away. And to make it even worse, Babylonians, they didn't just try to conquer a people, they tried to completely erase a people. Their goal when they took the 70,000 back to Babylon was not to have 70,000 Jewish people in Babylon. Their goal was to assimilate them in the Babylonian culture. They they weren't okay with just defeating a people. They wanted to erase the culture of the people too. And so you would travel back and you were forbidden to speak in your native tongue. You're forbidden to write in the language of the people. The ancient Jewish alphabet is lost during this time period. If you ever see modern Hebrew, That's not the script they were using prior to the exile. They lost the ability to write. They forgot their alphabet in the exile. And you can imagine being carried off to a foreign land thousands of miles from your homeland. That you would start to have this creeping notion that maybe God had abandoned you. Or maybe he wasn't as strong as you thought he was. And for 70 years, these people lived in a foreign land with a foreign tongue being controlled by a foreign dictator with their children, the brightest, the sharpest, being swept away and turned into Babylonians because they were forced to go through Babylonian education and they were forced to serve in the government. This is what's playing out for them. And then out of nowhere, this moment, when the Lord promises well, be, well before the 70 years happens that he's going to do something, this king, predicted by name in the book of Isaiah, steps into power and doing so fulfills the promise that was spoken about him hundreds of years before. This king releases the Jewish people. And they go home. And this is what it's referring to, that these people, their lives, the fortunes have been restored. And that's why it says we were like those who dreamed. It was like my daughter, um, when we were preparing for Disney World, she, she woke up really early. And one of her questions is like, is this a dream or am I really going today? Like, they're in such a shock. They're like, is this real? Are we really free? Can we leave here and go home now? Like, is like Is this real? And it says they move beyond the shock, and then they're loud. They're just laughing. They're overwhelmed with joy. They're just consumed by this, and it's starting to spread. It's not just they're talking about. It's like the whole world is talking about what God has done. Did you hear? Did you hear the king that was predicted about long before the king was ever even like born steps steps in, and the God of these people who predicted that king would step into the throne, he actually did, and that king did exactly what their God said he would do. He freed them, and they went out. Did you hear about that? Man, their God is incredible. He's done great things for them. And they're like, yeah, yeah, the, God has done great things for us. Like It's just like, like spreading among the nations what God has done. And what the psalmist is attempting to do is that this is not the reason the psalm is written. They're not in the season of walking back to Jerusalem restored and happy and filled with laughter. This psalm is written in a dark period of their life, of their season. It's not good times. It was good times. But the first step the psalmist says is to go back to those times where it was good. He literally pulls their minds out of the present and he forces them into the past. Fox News about six years ago started getting pretty um, persistent complaints that uh, people's televisions were being broken by Fox News. Um, they were calling up Fox News, they were emailing Fox News' headquarters, and they said, look, um, you've damaged my screen on my television, I want you to replace it. And they started getting these pretty regularly, and they were like, well, how are we damaging your screen? And the thing that everyone said is that, well, your logo, on, your logo, no matter what channel I am on, stays there. No matter what channel I turn it to, the Fox News logo is still there. And Fox News starts to dive into the problem and they realize that what's happening is that people are turning on their televisions on news and they leave it there all day. Five or six hours go by and what happens is that while everything else on the screen is moving, the Fox News logo at the time was static and it just stayed there. It never moved. It never turned. It never shifted. It just stayed there. And it started to create this this phenomenon that can happen with televisions where the image gets burned into the screen. It's the reason we have screensavers today, in fact, on computers, is because that problem is present on computers, not just televisions. It's part of technology. And so Fox News had to to go back and come, come up with a fix for the problem. So today, even if you were to flip through the channels and you stopped at Fox News, you would see their logo rotates now. It's no longer static. Fox News essentially had the same realization that the psalmist has That if we're not careful, when we allow something in our life to be fixated in our minds, it starts to kind of burn an image into our hearts. And that when we step into that pain moment, when we're consumed by that death of that loss or that relationship that never played out or that we're single and we never intended to be single in this season or that we're in a place of debt when we never intended to be Staring at Bankruptcy. Like that starts to dominate our purview. It's all we can see. It gets burned into our hearts and mind. And the psalmist says, look, the way you fix that, the way you save the screen, is that you've got to go back to the past and look at a moment where God has been faithful, where he broke through before. He said, think about a moment where it turned out Well. Think about a moment where you saw his hand, where it was clear he took care of you, that he rescued you, that he redeemed you, that he restored you, that go back to that moment. And for some of you maybe exploring faith and you're like, well, I'm not really sure I'm comfortable with applying something to God. Well, let me just help you. I'm 35 years old. And what I would say is no matter what your age is, what you have is a billboard of faithfulness. Because nobody looking up here has got the thought, well, God's held back on food for him right? I've gone 35 years and I haven't missed a meal. I've gone 35 years and I I haven't had to walk into a room naked because I had clothes. I've had 35 years of having a roof over my head. I've had 35 years of those core necessities that we take for granted that half the world wonders if it's going to play out for them today. That that's never even crossed my mind. And then I can just layer on top of that of moments where Things have happened that I I hoped would happen. And then they did. Like those moments where it turned out well, the psalmist says, can actually be a source. It can be a well that you can draw hope from. That there are hopes. There are these little hope wells in our past that we can draw out to help us in our present. That there have been moments where God has been faithful and his faithfulness in the past can actually serve as fuel in our present hopeless moments, which is why he continues. It's not just that we look to our past in verse four, right? He says that um, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev, which is him pivoting. He's spent 50% of this psalm looking back. It's not just the the memory itself, it's even in the amount of time in the psalm dedicated to looking to the past, reinforces that. Because when we have that, we can draw from that hope in the past and bring it into our present, which is why you see the opening line, restore our fortunes. Verse one, when the Lord restored the fortunes, the same word, verse four, he's bringing, he's drawing from that past moment into the present saying, God, you've done it before. Would you do it again? Would you be present again? And then he uses this beautifully, beautifully captivating, picturesque language like streams in the Negev, which for us as Americans 2,500 years later, we wouldn't necessarily resonate with that. But if you and I were to travel in Israel today, what you would find is that this would still have power for an Israeli, because the Negev is the desert portion of Israel. It's this part of Israel that's dry, and it's a wasteland, and there is no life. It's just barren, and it's brown, and it's a desert. But something happens there every once in a while that changes the landscape. You see, rains dropping somewhere in the distance starts to move down, and a flash flood can happen out of nowhere. That in the Negev, even today, roads can be washed out in the wasteland by water. That traffic will stop because waters, these waters, huge sweeping rivers will just wash over the road and prevent people from driving through the desert. And in those moments that follow the wasteland, having waterfalls is flowers and grass sprouting up everywhere and the wasteland becomes a place of beauty. Desert rocks become diving boards in the Negev when these flash floods hit. And this psalmist is using this image that most of them would have remembered that even in the desert wasteland, waterfalls can still happen. And God can still make a way, even in our darkest moments. And with that hope into our reality and into our present that there is both honesty that this is the Negev, God, this is the desert, this is the wasteland, and yet there's also hope that there could be streams again. And I think this is so critical that it's a short point, but to not run through it, that in the prayer, this is a prayer to God, that there is both honesty and there's hope. Honesty in the present and hope from the past. If God do something extraordinary in the midst of this we need you that there's honesty with God that there's not a beating around the bush it's God this place this relationship this career of mine this relationship with my child this marriage I'm in this season of life is a wasteland it's dead and I don't understand how I'm going to make it through There's that level of honesty with them. But then there's hope. God, would you bring streams? That there's this beautiful prayer that it's not just honesty with God, it's honesty with each other. This is a communal prayer. This is done in the the face and surrounded by people. They're being honest with each other. No one is trying to sugarcoat the desert. No one's trying to cover up the wasteland. They're being real about it. And for some of us, we've experienced church and we've experienced community within church in an exact opposite way of what the psalmist is pointing to. We don't find it to be a safe place. We don't find it to be an honest place. We find it to be a place where people pretend like they have it all together. But here's the secret of church. You come to church because we're the only people who recognize we don't have it together. That's what unifies us is that we know we don't have it together. But we know the God who can hold it together. And that this is why there's this honesty with him and there's honesty with them going on around them. And that's why we created life groups so people could find and experience a safe place where they can begin to unpack, unpack and, and kind of just digest the fact that they're standing in a desert wasteland and they need hope. And for those people around them to, they don't have the power to bring rain, but they have the power to offer a water bottle. And so I'll walk with you through the season. That this can be a safe place where you don't have to have it together to be together. That we're honest with him and we're honest with them. But there's hope in the midst of that. And I would just ask you, even before I wrap up, is like, do you, does your prayers reflect that honesty and that hope? So speak to the reality of where you are and speak reality to those who are with you there. Because that's critical. Because we need that prayer to set us up for the process that we find in verse 5. Verse 5, it says that, Those who sow the tears will reap with songs of joy. Just this this simple statement that's the process. You've got the past where we draw our hope from. You've got the present prayer, which looks at the honesty and infuses that hope. And then out of that prayer is a process that we move and we walk in. And that process is this, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And it's really easy to read over that and say that's a really poetic, maybe even pithy, but I don't know if that speaks to where I am. But you have to understand the way the ancients understood farming. This isn't what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This has substance to it. Because the ancients did not see farming the way you and I see farming. Farming now is a science. It, it's a big business. You can One person can have a farm with thousands of acres. This was not the way it was back then. This wasn't... Everybody in ancient Israel sat, sat through a botany class and they learned how seeds work and how water hits it in the right conditions and the little seedling spouts up. They didn't know any of that. For the ancients, the act of planting a seed was a powerful moment. It was a moment of faith. It was a moment of death. That's why if you go back and study ancient cultures, what you find in ancient cultures are oftentimes there were gods assigned to growth. There were gods assigned to planting and harvesting. Because for the ancients, it was a mystical, magical, mysterious thing that they had no power over. The farmer would take this risky step of going out into their field, of digging up a hole and dropping a seed in it and covering it over. And all the farmer had was the hope that something would grow. Because if not, if not, They had nothing for the next year. It was this powerful moment of faith. The act of planting was akin to attending a funeral. You would plant your seed in the ground and you had no control or no idea what would happen in the future. And that's why the psalmist uses this passage because the farmer... And the ancient understanding of planting speaks to how we walk through our bottom of the ninth moments that don't turn out well. That we have a choice, first of all. That this, those who sow, those who go sowing, right, this is a choice. This is something they decided. For many of us, we get into these places of grief, and instead of grieving, we gripe. Instead of Stepping to the process active, we go passive, right? Pain hits us, and we shrink back. We think the best is behind us. It'll never play out again, and we retreat. We pull back. We let dreams die. But it's not a healthy death. We go into limbo. And we have this image burned in our minds of the way the things used to be, or the conversations, or the what-if scenarios. And they, they haunt us. The same way that logo just stayed at the bottom of everyone's screen, no matter what conversation, no matter what's going on in your life, that past, just this negative image sticks and stays stuck and we stranded in it. And what the psalmist is saying here is no, you step out with a choice to say, you know what, this is a risky move, but I'm going to grieve what was lost, that I'm going to bend down. I'm going to scoop up the dirt, and I'm going to drop that dream. I'm going to drop that relationship. I'm going to let go of the fact that I will never have the relationship with my autistic child that I hoped I would have. Or that I'm putting down and dealing with the fact that I'm single again in a season when I never wanted to be. And I grieve that. And I weep over that. Like as a young child, I remember like being haunted by death because my dad had died when I was younger. Or that's what I thought. And I just kept waiting on the day that my mom would die too. I remember growing up underneath the weight of that and being gripped by that and starting to get bitter. Everyone else has it. I don't have it. And there was a point in my life where I had to walk through and weep and mourn and plant that seed and grieve over what was lost. Grieve over the fact that I'd never have that. Like literally tears that that's a chapter in my life where that'll never be written into it. But what I found was that when I was willing to grieve and let it go, The tears from my eyes actually served as the very water that started to spring up a harvest. That now, as a man who grew up without a father, with all the weight that came with that, I'm a, a, daughter of a, I'm a dad of a five-year-old daughter. And that relationship, the beauty of that relationship, the strength of that relationship is the harvest of the seed of the grief that I planted decades ago with no idea what could ever come out of it. No idea what could ever spring forth from such a devastating blow to me as a young boy. And this is what the psalmist is pointing us to, that for an ancient farmer to drop a seed in the ground and to cover it up was ultimately a step of faith that one day something would spring up from the ground. That what was lost would one day be a harvest. And that the way that that would play out was just one step at a time of sowing a seed in sorrow, not soaking in my sorrow. Of grieving and letting it go, not griping and complaining about what I'm still trying to hold on to. But moving past it. And that on the other other side of that, there could be a harvest. For William Morse, uh, in 1825, he was a brilliant painter. And he had been tasked by the city of New York to paint the picture of Lafayette, this famous French revolutionary um, kind of hero for America. And in the midst of painting this portrait of Lafayette, he's in Washington, D.C., working on it. And a horse rider shows up one day and says, your wife is sick. The very next day, a second horse rider shows up and says, your wife is dead. He immediately drops his paintbrush and rushes back to New Haven where he lived at the time. And by the time he gets to New Haven, he arrives and finds that his wife has already been buried. And that moment does something inside of him. He decides that no man No father, no mother, no sister, no brother, no grandparent should ever have to go through what he went through of showing up with this devastating loss and find that the funeral has already happened. And it sets him on path. He grieves. He drops the seed in. And moving beyond that, what happens is over the next two decades, he designs what becomes known as the telegraph machine. And he's the inventor of what we call Morse code. This painter, this illustrator, goes and becomes a technologist and an inventor of the standard in electronic rhythmic control that we all know called Morse code. Born out of that moment of a seed that says no one should have to experience this again. And a harvest that followed was the telegraph. And rapid, long-form communication. You see, something happens when we're willing to grieve. I was just meeting with a young couple, um, with the husband specifically, and they were walking me through their struggle and their storyline, and they found out as a young couple they were not going to be able to have kids. And they really wanted to have kids. They really wanted like, young life running through the hallways of their house. And they said, we got to a point, we grieved and we weeped and we worked through and we said, but you know what? We can still have kids. And so they kind of took this first step of being a foster parent, setting up a foster home. And now 11 children have gone through their foster home. Kids pulled out of abuse, pull, kids pulled out of hopeless situations are inserted into this home where hope is literally seeping out of the walls. And now they're in this process of adopting the two children that are in their house right now. A two-year-old and a four-year-old ripped away from their mother and father in a hopeless situation. You see, when we're willing to grieve, when we're willing to plant that seed, when we're willing to say, you know what, that stage of my life is over and done then we start to free ourselves up. We start to let go. And the tears that drop out of our eyes start to do something beneath the surface that we don't even see that turns into a harvest years later. And this miraculous process that we can walk through that's laid out in this step goes beyond just the process. And this is how I want to wrap it up. Verse 6. It says, uh That those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is how the psalmist wraps it up. He's like, no, I know I've told you to look to your past, and I know you told you to bring that hope into your present and to offer up that prayer and then to step out in faith from that prayer and start this promise of letting things go and grieving and moving forward and weeping and and continuing that forward motion in life. But what I'm telling you is not just some hopeful statement. What I'm telling you is a promise which is why in verse 6 he does something that's not clear in the English language. When we read this, it's not present in the way English is spoken, because we're different. But the ancient Jewish writer of this text, when they wrote it, said, those who go out weeping, those who go out weeping, he repeats himself. Because in the ancient Like in the ancient world, you repeated a word. They didn't have italics. They didn't have bold. They didn't have underline. They didn't have emojis. Like if you wanted to communicate something, this is how you did it. You repeated the word. And in this passage, two words are repeated to make a point, to say this is more than a process. This is a promise that when you go, that when you go sowing seed in sorrow with your very tears as the water for that seed, then what will happen is that you will, you will reap a harvest. And he repeats these words twice to make the point that this ancient view of planting as death and funeral hinted to something that we now stand and celebrate in three weeks, which that there is resurrection, there is hope, that there is life, that we serve a God who is able to step in to our painful moments. And when we submit it to him by following these steps, that what he promises us is that I will bring purpose out of your pain. Pain does not make you stronger. You choosing your pain to have a purpose does. Does. That when you choose to say, you know what i 'm going to plant this sorrow as a seed, trusting that God will bring something out of it, there will be a harvest on the other side that that 's what we celebrated Easter right is that Jesus was stuck in this tomb, the seed was planted, and three days later, out of the ground burst this, this plant of life called the church, called the God Almighty Resurrected, where hope has been moving forward for 2,000 years because death was defeated, because a dream on a cross had died. And God's power raised it back to life, saying, no, 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 no. I have defeated the grave. I have conquered death. I walk into graveyards, and I see crowds just waiting to happen. I come into your life, and it may look like death is raining, and I'm just warming up, and I'm pulling out my baton because I'm about to bring life and hope to those dead bones. Like, that's what this psalmist was trying to say. And this is not hype. This is hope. That the God of the resurrection can bring life to us. That what is buried in sorrow today can become fruit tomorrow. That what you're going through as a couple, what you're going through as a single, what you're going through in your struggle at your workplace or with that relationship as a job, that I'm telling you that those are seeds that you can plant. And I love the imagery that those who plant seeds, right? Sorry, it's just, man, this is so good. That a seed, you can carry a seed in your hand. Drop it in and you weep over it. Notice in verse six, right? What does it say? It says that they will be carrying sheaves. Now, sheaves is not a word I use every day or ever, but I love it. It's like, you may have dropped that in, but you got to carry this out. Because you don't hold a sheave in your hand. You carry a sheave like this. Like, man, I hope I can make it to the door because I'm going to drop something. (laughs) That's what God can do when we're willing to look to our past and draw that hope from what he's done before and drop it into our present to fuel the prayer that gives us the energy and the strength to walk into a process that at the very root of that process is a promise. That the God who is able to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and bring him back to life is able to do in our lives the same thing. And that some of us have allowed dreams to die. And I just want to say over you that it's time for that dream to be resurrected. That some of you have grieved what was lost thinking it would never be found again, and I would like to tell you that the best days are not behind you. They are still in front of you. Because a seed dropped into the ground never, ever, ever compares to the sheaves that you carry in your hands. And that is what's possible. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and Thank you for the promise that you bring, the hope that you carry into our lives and infuse, that you you are one who takes seeds and turns them to sheaves, that you take dead dreams and you bring them to life again. And I pray that we would be as a people that maybe even some of us today in this room or today online would say, today's the day that I drop that in the ground. I'm letting go of that death. I'm letting go of that divorce. I'm letting go of that dead-end job. I'm letting go of that dream, of that relationship, that God, I'm going to weep over it. I'm going to be honest what it has cost me when I lost it. And to cover it up and to move forward knowing that you are a God who doesn't waste a single tear from our eye, who doesn't waste a single pain moment of our lives. So may we be people who even today have whispered into our hearts, it's time to prepare the barns because there's harvest coming, that there's hope here with us. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. So, What I want to do before we leave is that I'd like to take this time and us to be able to sing this sermon out. Because at the end of the day, this was the song. It was a song. And this song that we're about to sing, we've sung before, but it's a song that we've slowly introduced to you because it has power. Because this is a song that is a modern rendition of this Psalm 126. It's a song that says our God is able to take our dead dreams and do something significant again in our lives. And I appreciate your patience with me. I appreciate you letting me take you a little bit longer than I normally would to be able to just unpack these three steps because these steps can help move us into hopeful places. These steps can help move us into life-giving places. These steps can move us into relationships that have been restored into a picture of a life and a person we could become that we never imagined that these steps can take us to a better place, not a bitter place. And that to wrap it up today, we wanna sing this song called Do It Again. A song that says, God, we believe you can do it. And I would encourage you, even as you sing it, to maybe come bring into your mind something in your life that you feel like is dead. And just say, God, here's my relationship or here's my career. Here's something in my personal life. Here's a struggle we're having. And just to offer it to him. Say, would you do it again? Would you bring life to this again? Would you bring hope again? That this is a moment like we do every week where we just wanna carve out space for you to be able to reflect and unpack and apply for your life and my life. It's also a place where we want to, we recognize that there are next steps that are always present for us in life. For, for those who are part of Encounter Church, this is one of those practical moments where we set aside to be generous. That we are a church that does generous things because we are a church of generous people. And that's played out in this moment every single week. And so that's why at the same time you'll see baskets being passed around or a link to an, a website where you can give on the app. But for those who may be here today, it's your first time. This is a time for you to listen. to how we can pray for you, how we can get to know you, how we can get to walk with you at your pace, at your comfort level so that we can be a source of hope and help because we believe that Jesus brings hope, that he brings help, that he takes dead things and he brings them to life again. And that this is what this song is meant to do inside of us is to remind us of that. And so I invite you to stand. We're gonna sing, declare this God who is able to do it again.